when I went to basic training, we uh, arrived and there was a, an old soldier at Fort Benning who was retiring and processing out of the army as we were processing in. And he was given the, the wonderful task of supervising our platoon of recruits as we waited to go downrange for basic training. And one day he caught somebody asleep, not me, somebody else, asleep when they were supposed to be awake. And, and after he lit into us and tore us up a little bit, he told a story about the importance of staying awake when you were supposed to be awake. He was a Vietnam veteran and he said that in Vietnam one of the issues that the soldiers had to deal with was psychological impact of the actions of the Vietnamese soldiers. He said one of the favorite forms of psychological Warfare was to find a soldier asleep out in the field and when he was supposed to be on guard. And, and rather than killing the guard, they would slip past him and go into the soldiers that he was supposed to be guarding and they would silently kill him. And then they would leave the soldier on guard alone. And then he would wake up at some point eventually and go to the next person who was supposed to be on guard and he would find that everybody had died while he was asleep on guard duty. The old soldier told us that many of those guards never mentally recovered from what had happened on their watch. And in my mind, I, I kind of see Satan doing something similar to the church. But if Satan can catch us sleeping when we're supposed to be awake, it'll allow him to slip past what we're supposed to be doing to, to advance the kingdom of God and, and to do things that are dangerous and deadly and, and harming people that he wouldn't do. We as the church of Jesus Christ were awake. How would we know if we were asleep? What does it look like when the church is asleep and needs to wake up? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to Ephesians 1. Uh, Ephesians 5, 1. 5 and 1. should be page 897 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the first 14 verses... Um, but we're just going to primarily focus on a few today and we'll pick up the rest next time. I, I could have preached it all as one message, but it would have been about three hours long, which is fine with me. But Scott says that's too long, so we couldn't do it. Right, Ephesians 5 and 1. Paul writes, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ hath also loved us and hath given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling Savior. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be ye not therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame to even speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things are that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. 
title of the message this morning is Wake Up. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come this morning as a needy people, Lord. We need to know what you have for us. We need to know if we've fallen asleep. Lord, when we lay down at night to go to bed, we don't notice that we've fallen asleep until the morning when we wake up. So if we have fallen asleep spiritually right now, we have no clue. We have no idea of this. And what we need is for your Holy Spirit and for your Holy Word to work together. To nudge us. To poke us. To wake us up from sleeping. That we could arise and be light of the Lord in a dark and a dying world. Father, today fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to say only what you once said, Lord. Nothing more, nothing less. Your words are what matters and not mine. Have your way. Wake us up if we're asleep. Strengthen us if we're weak. Encourage us if we're discouraged. Restore us if we are prodigal. Save us if we are lost. Change us so that we would be ever more like Jesus. We ask in His name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Notice in verse 1 that the therefore. Be ye therefore. That connects us back up to Ephesians 4 and 32. Be kind, tenderhearted to one another, forgiving one another. And here's the part. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Right. So all that Paul is going to talk about in Ephesians 5 that we're going to look at is based upon what God has done in Christ uh, by forgiving us in Christ. All we're commanded to do in Ephesians 5 is based upon what God has done in forgiving us through faith in Jesus. And we are to, to as part of what we're to do because of what God has done for us, is we are to be followers of God. Right? God has forgiven us in Christ, therefore, we are to follow God. We are to imitate Him. Right now, the word the King James translates as followers, it means to follow a person's example completely. Right? If you ever played Simon Says or follow the leader, that's sort of the picture there. The goal of Simon Says is to do exactly what Simon Says to do. The goal of follow the leader is to do exactly what the leader does. Uh, and in both games, you sort of imitate the person in charge. And that's a picture of what Paul paints here for us. We are to be imitators of God. Now, in case we miss the motivation for this, that what God has done for us in Christ, he repeats it as dear children. Just as a, a young child often imitates a parent, we are to imitate God. But the wording here is more than the cute picture of a young boy imitating his dad shaving. Right? Rather, it is the picture... Of the fact that we have been adopted. right? We have been adopted as children of God. And so we are to live a certain way because of what God has done for us. Remember in Ephesians 1 we learned that before God intervened we were children of disobedience. We were objects of God's wrath. We were the enemies of God through our wicked works. And we were alienated from Him. By our vile thoughts. And we walked a course of this world that was laid out for us by the prince of the power of the air. And we would have stayed that way had God not intervened in our behalf. But God, who is rich in mercy with the great love wherewith he has loved us, he has made us alive 
in Christ. He has adopted us as His children. He has given us access to Him. And so because of what God has done, we are to imitate Him. We are to follow Him. We are to do what He says to do, no matter what that might be. But look at the warning in verse 14. Wherefore He saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Those who are meant to be imitators of God are sleeping. And they need to be woke up. It pictures professing believers who are imitating the world rather than imitating God. They've essentially fallen asleep in the lap of the world and are living in spiritual darkness as though they did not know Jesus. They are being carried along with unbelieving attitudes and unbelieving actions from the unbelieving world. And they need to wake up and let the light and life of Christ flow through them again. Now, if that isn't a picture of what we see in our world today, specifically of American Christianity, I don't know what is. Every day seems to bring some fresh new horror from the American church in the news. Pastors and leaders committing apostasy, making big social media posts. They no longer believe in God. Pastors and leaders being exposed in sexual immorality and abuse of people that they are over, whether it's in the church or people in their offices. Denominational leaders are being exposed for covering for pastors and leaders guilty of sexual immorality and sexual abuse. Churches doing ridiculous and childish things to gather a crowd. And then when they gather the crowd, they don't even preach the gospel. They preach some sort of moralistic, therapeutic deism that does not connect people to Jesus. It only makes them feel good about themselves. And it would be easy enough to say that the problem lies with pastors and leaders, for truly, there's plenty of weight there to go around. But we all know regular Christians who are doing these same things as well. How many of us know someone who was once a professing believer, and yet they don't live for Jesus in any noticeable way? Now, they've not made a social media post saying that they don't believe in God anymore, but, they're, but every day their lives testify they do not believe in Jesus. How many of us know professing believers who live sexually immoral lives? Whether through fornication, through adultery, or through pornography. How many of us know professing believers who have abused their positions of power at the expense of another person made in the image of God? Whether it was through sexual harassment, physical abuse, sexual abuse, or verbal abuse. How many of us know professing believers who have abused their positions of power at the expense of another human made in God's image and had someone cover for them. Perhaps it was a boss who convinced someone not to talk about it publicly. Perhaps it was a wife who covered for her husband's sexual harassment of another woman. Perhaps it was a a husband who covered for his wife's adultery. How many of us know professing believers who don't take their relationship with Jesus seriously? Oh, they never say they don't take it seriously, but their lack of prayer demonstrates they don't take it seriously. Their lack of Bible study, personal Bible study, demonstrates they don't take it seriously. Their lack of gathering with other believers to worship God demonstrates they don't take it seriously. Their lack of holiness demonstrates they don't take it seriously. And just a a general flippancy they have about spiritual and eternal things demonstrate they don't take it seriously. All the stuff the news reports about 
spiritual leaders in the church is bad and it's real. But all the stuff that's reported about spiritual leaders in the church is also true of regular people in the church. The only difference is when regular people do it, it doesn't make the news like it does when a spiritual leader does. The commonness of these attitudes, the commonness of these actions is just a giant, flashing, screaming, neon sign revealing the church of Jesus Christ is asleep and needs to wake up. The church must wake up to imitate God by walking in love, holiness, hatred of sin, and bold proclamation of truth. Again, we don't have time to look at all of that today. We will look at two today. And we will look at the rest next time. So we must first wake up to love like Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is often an angry, hate-filled place. And the anger and the hatred of the world should not surprise us. Because Scripture warns us about it. Jesus, in fact tells us to expect it. He says the closer and closer it gets to the end of the world, the more that iniquity will abound and this will cause the love of many to wax cold. Now I'm not saying we're in the end times, but I am saying that iniquity is abounding and love is waxing cold. Anger and hatred rise while love and compassion for your fellow man is on the decline. And it is evident in, in everything virtual in our lives. But one way I saw it stand out to me last week was on August the 23rd. To me, a day that demonstrated that the anger and the hatred and the waxing cold of love, it abounds to people of all categories. Because on August 23rd, conservative political philanthropist David Koch died. And when he died, many liberals rejoiced and they said awful things about him and what they hoped happened in his death things I would not dare repeat but on the same day Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg underwent successful treatment for a malignant tumor discovered on her pancreas and while liberals rejoiced at the death of a conservative Many conservatives lamented the successful surgery of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, wishing she had died. Now, regardless of your political affiliation, both of these attitudes are horrific. They are signs of anger and hatred rising in love, waxing cold. And that's how the world is. The world is going to be that way, but the church must not be. That is not who we are meant to be. That is not who Jesus saved us to be. We know this. But let me prove that we know this. What is the greatest commandment? Raise your hand if you know the answer to that. Don't worry, I'm not going to call on you as quote. I just want you to raise your hand. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second commandment? Raise your hand if you know that one. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. And how, according to Jesus, will all men know we're His disciples? Raise your hand if you know the answer to that. 
It is by loving one to another. So the idea that we're supposed to be filled with love instead of hatred, this isn't shocking new information that we're just like, oh my goodness. If we as the church are letting the world influence us in hatred and anger, it is not godly. It is not Christ-like. It is not right. It is a sign that we are asleep and we must wake up to live in love. But not just any kind of love the way the world defines it. We are to love the way that Jesus loved. A love that is evident in our actions and our attitudes and our words. Look at verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. If we're to love as Jesus loves, our love must be sacrificial. And that's a, to me, that's a big deal. Because through the years I've talked with lots of people and had them say terrible things about people, whether it was people of a different political group, people of a different ethnic group, people who are, have a religious, a different religion, people who have a sexual, different sexual orientation. And if I mention the love your neighbor's passage, they always respond with something like, well, it's not like I want them to die. I don't hate them or anything. I don't want anything to, I don't want them to die. But look at the kind of love we are to have. Isn't what Paul talks about in verse 2, isn't that more than a, I'll say hateful, terrible things about them, but I hope they don't die or anything bad happens to them kind of love. Isn't this an, an active, go out and do good for people kind of love? I mean, isn't that what Jesus did for us? We were hellbound. We were lost. We were rightly deserving of the wrath and the judgment of God. And He left the glories of heaven. He came to earth. He took on our flesh. He lived a sinless life. He died in our place. He rose again. He intercedes to the Father. He took the initiative to do good for us. It cost Him something. The love He had for us. That's the kind of love we're supposed to have. And not just for my wife, not just for my kids, not just for those who love me. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, how special is that? Even the sinners do that. Mass murderers on death row love people who love them and do good for people who do good to them. Is that really the barrel line that we as disciples of Jesus want to live by? No. We are called to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us and to those who despitefully use us. Is that easy? No, I don't want to do this. I, I am much more a do good to those who do good to me kind of guy. On a natural level, I could get behind some disliking and being mean to people. On a natural level. I can get behind running people down and saying awful things and then going, well, I don't want them to die or anything. Oh, my flesh loves that kind of talk. My flesh lives in that place and loves for me to act that way. The Spirit of God living within me does not. We are not called to live like the world and to love like the world. 
We are called to live like Jesus and love like Jesus. And that requires us to give of ourselves for others, even those who hate us in return. The reality is the world is filled with people who hate Jesus and yet He still died for them. People will live and they will die hating Jesus and they will go to hell and He still died for them. Judas would betray Jesus the night of His passion and He still washed His feet. That is our example. That is who we're to emulate. Not the world. Not anyone else. Jesus. And when we love in this way, notice what it says. That it is an offering, a sacrifice, and a sweet-smelling savor. this This means that it is pleasing to God. When we love people as Jesus has loved us, God is always pleased. If God is pleased when we love people as Jesus has loved us, what do you think He might be when we love people as the world loves people? What do you think Jesus might be when we act like the world instead of like Him? Do you think that's pleasing to Him? Is that a sweet-smelling savor that rises up to God and He says, those are my people. We are to have a love that the Apostle John said is in word or in tongue. Not word or tongue, but in deed and the truth. And when we love in that way, it is always pleasing to God. Here's the thing. There was a time when this kind of love is exactly what the church was known for. Let me read you something from a book that I read a few years ago. It's a lengthy quote, but it's very relevant to what we're talking about. The author of the book says, These ordinary believers devoted themselves to sacrificial acts of kindness. They loved their enemies and forgave their persecutors. They cared for the poor and they fed the hungry. In the brutality of life under Roman rule, they were the most stunningly different people Anyone had ever seen. Indeed, their influence was so surprising that the 4th century Emperor Julian feared they might take over the empire. Referring to Christians as Galileans and Christianity as atheism because of their denial of the existence of pagan gods and believing their religion to be a sickness, he wrote this. So here is a, a, the words of a pagan Hater of Christianity. We must pay special attention to this point. And by this means effect a cure. For when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the priests. And he's referring to the pagan priests. Then I think the impious Galileans observed this. And they devoted themselves to philanthropy. And they gained ascendancy in the worst of their deeds. Through the credit they win for such practices. For just as those who entice children with cake and by throwing it to them two or three times induce them to follow them, and then when they were far away, their friends cast them on board a ship and sell them slaves. By the same method, I say, the Galileans also begin with their so-called love feast or their hospitality or their service of tables 
For they have many ways of carrying it out and hence call it by many names. And the result is they have led many to atheism. We'll talk about more of that in a second, but you think about that. This is not even just a regular guy. This is an emperor of one of the most powerful nations that existed. And he is afraid of Christians. Not because they have political clout. Not because of the voting bloc they represent. But because they love people so well. People are being drawn out of paganism into Christianity. And he fears their influence. He doesn't fear their vote. He doesn't fear their Supreme Court justices. He fears how they love. Because the pagans do not love that way. The author of the book continues, In the miserable world of the Roman Empire, the Christians not only proclaimed the mercy of God, but they demonstrated it. They not only fed the poor, they welcomed all comers, regardless of their social economic status. The nobleman embraced the slave. Moreover, Christians opened their fellowship to anyone, irrespective of ethnicity, and they promoted social relations between the sexes and within families. In their day, men did not talk to women who were not of their family. And what they said was men and women were equal and everybody could talk to everybody. They were literally the most surprising alternative society and their conduct raised an insatiable curiosity among the average Roman. Could the same be said of the church Would somebody writing about the American church today, would they say that they were literally the most surprising alternative society and their conduct raised an insatiable curiosity among the average American? And if not, why not? Is it Because we have fallen asleep in the lap of the world and embraced the world's hatred and the world's anger and the world's attitude. Is it because we need to wake up, get back to our roots of loving people like Jesus loved people? The church must wake up. Imitate God and love like Jesus loved. Secondly, we must wake up to a life of holiness. The topic of holiness or personal purity in our day has tragically taken a hit. When the topic of holiness or personal purity comes up, many people mistakenly believe that it's a synonym for legalism. And this is a very common and yet tragic belief within the modern church. The mindset of holiness and purity being legalism is one of the ways that we know the church has fallen asleep in the lap of the world. Because when you read the Bible, and you read what the Bible says about God, part of what stands out is that the God of the Bible is holy. He is 
the Holy One of Israel, we're told. He is the one to whom the angels surround and never cease to cry out over and over again, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God of Israel. He is so holy, He cannot look favorably upon sin. He is so holy, Scripture says not one sin will enter into His heavenly home. And despite all that Scripture says about the holiness of our God, somehow, many in the modern church have concluded that personal holiness is altogether unnecessary. Where does this idea come from? Well, not from Scripture. Look at what Paul says in verse 3 and 4. Fornication and all uncleanness, covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. These would have been common sins in their day, and really they're common in our day. We'll cover them quickly. Fornication is any sort of sexual relationship outside the bonds of a heterosexual marriage. The term that's used for fornication, it would refer to Direct sexual behavior between people as well as indirect participation in an audience as shows like that were very common in the Roman culture. So this would include not only sexual acts of immorality, but also pornography. Uncleanness would be any sort of moral uncleanness, but especially as it related to sexual issues. For uncleanness, no actual physical act is required to take place for this sin to occur. It covers everything from lustful thoughts to sexual jokes to actual sexual conduct. Covetousness is a, a, an unceasing desire for more. It's described as a desire that can never be fulfilled. Covetous people can no more be satisfied with what they have than you can fill up a bowl with the bottom broken out of it. Filthiness is speaking or living in foul or obscene ways. Foolish talking. One of the ideas of foolishness is thoughtlessness. So picture Someone who thinks or who speaks without thinking. That is foolish talking. Someone who speaks without considering the consequences of their words is someone who talks foolishly. And then jesting. Now jesting doesn't refer to simple, what I call it, joke, as much as it does like suggestive sexual humor or off-color jokes. Possibly jokes at the expense of another to make them feel less than or to make them feel put down in some way. Holiness is something we're to strive for in every aspect of our lives, every day of our lives. Holiness isn't something we're to to have on Sundays when we come to church and then we leave here. And then when we go home and go out into the world, we we do something different. I, I cannot be holy when I'm with church folk and then be myself when I'm with non-church folk. That, that is not holiness. That is hypocrisy. Right? Because it's hypocrisy, not because I'm trying and failing, it's hypocrisy because I want, I want this group of people to think one way about me, but I'm really something entirely different. And when I'm away from this group of people, I want that group of people to think something different about me. That is hypocrisy. Now, an all too common response to what we're looking at here, especially things like joking, jesting, foolish talking, something like, well, come on, you can't. I mean, you can't take stuff like this too seriously, right? In that kind of a common mindset, you don't get carried away with this stuff. I mean, 
Yeah, you ought to be basically moral, but come on, you can go too far. But notice how Paul says it here. He says, but fornication, all uncleanness and covetousness, let it what? Not be once named among you as becometh saints. So here's the picture. Anybody should be able to go to every person you know and ask them about any area of your life. And nobody who knows you should ever be able to legitimately say that these sort of things are evident in your life. They should, there, there should not be one person on the face of the earth who could say, yes, that's common in their life. Yes, I've seen that in them. That's the, that's the idea of not once named among you as becometh saints. Could your life bear up to that kind of scrutiny? Could, could mine? Really could mine? Now, if they can't, why? Is it because of what we see in Scripture? I mean, does Scripture teach us not to take holiness this seriously? Does Scripture teach us that it's not that important? Does Scripture teach us that it's okay to have a little bit on the side? No. Clearly, that is not the case. If our lives can't bear up to this kind of scrutiny... It's because we've fallen asleep. We've laid our, our head in the laps of the world. And we're living as though we are those who do not know Jesus. We have embraced darkness rather than light. Now Paul gives us two reasons we're to take holiness this seriously. The first goes back to verse 1. As dear children. We are the adopted children of God And our God is holy. So guess how we should be? We too should be holy. Peter said, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Before Jesus, we lived one way. We were ignorant of who God was, what God was like, what His will, and what His Word was. But then something changed. We were saved. We were adopted. And we became children of God. And since we are children of God, we are not to live as we did before. We're not to live as though we don't know God's will. We are not to live as though we don't know God. We're not to live as though we don't know God's word. We are to live as obedient children who imitate our father and our father is holy. So we too are to be holy in all manner of our life. Years ago, I heard a story from a pastor in Tulsa. He and his brother were abandoned by their mother when they were like two and three years old. They were left alone in an empty house for so long that their little diapers had grown to their bodies. And a policeman patrolling the abandoned neighborhood heard their crying and found them and took them to a hospital. They were given IVs and their life was saved. Later he adopted them and raised them as his own children. The pastor said he was always very careful about what he did because he did not want to bring shame to the name of the man who not only saved his life, but adopted him as his own child. 
that should be our attitude about the name of God on our lives. I mentioned this in, in Sunday school, but think about Matthew 5.16. Right? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. We love that verse. You know, Romans 22 is kind of the opposite verse. Romans 2.24 says that the name of God can be blasphemed because of our sin. Because of you. I mean, it says because of you, the name of God is blasphemed. So here we are. Children of Almighty God, the Holy God of Israel, the Holy God of the Bible. And our lives, our actions, our attitudes, our speech, our priorities, our values, they glorify God or they cause Him to be blasphemed. They do one or the other, always. I mean, there is someone who watches you, watches me, and they make life altering decisions about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like based upon our speech, based upon our attitudes, based upon our actions. God is either magnified in their eyes by us or God is diminished in their eyes by us. Living an unholy life, mirroring the lives of unbelievers, it does not make us more real to unbelievers. It does not make us more relatable to an unbeliever. What it does is cause an unbeliever to to determine that there is nothing significant that our Father has done in us and through us and for us. And He is therefore not worthy of their worship. We must wake up to a life of holiness because we do not want our Father to be blasphemed and shamed by our lives. Secondly, we must wake up to a life of holiness because Holiness is a a sign that we have been changed. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. Should not be named once among you as becometh saints. Now in in some traditions, saints are like super Christians who have gone on before us. And because of their awesomeness, they're still at work in the world today. And they answer prayers and they do miracles. Now, that belief doesn't actually come from Scripture at all. In Scripture... Saints are those who have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ. If you have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, biblically, you are a saint. Faith in Jesus, it causes us to be born again and it changes not only our eternal destiny, but it changes our lives. Look at verse 8. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children... Of the light. Now, the verse eight is is great, and we don't have time. I wish we had more time to study it. But look, at, notice the, the exact wording. You were sometimes darkness, not not you sometimes walked in darkness. You were darkness. You and I, we didn't just walk in darkness in need of light. We were by our nature darkness because of our sin and our rebellion and our pushing against God. But God. Came and He intervened. And now we are light in the Lord. And so we're supposed to walk as light. We have been changed in the very core of who we are. We were darkness. We are now light. We should walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Salvation not only changes our eternal destinies, it changes who we are. We are not the same anymore. We are not merely enlightened by God's truth. We are now filled with the light and life of Christ. And it's meant to be seen in all 
of who we are and how we act. And it is seen in what is good and what is righteous and what is true. And it doesn't, the picture isn't that this happens occasionally. This is the, the way that we live. This is the natural result of being born again through faith in Jesus Christ. So why should the sins of verse 3 and 4 and, and really verse 5 and 6, which we'll talk about next time, why should they not be named among us? Because Jesus has saved us. Our Father has adopted us. The Spirit has transformed us. And all of this produces the opposite of what our natural life produced. Those who have been born again, adopted by God the Father, have been transformed by His Spirit and should live in holiness as the natural, not easy, but natural way of life. We must get past the point of saying, I'm human, as a way to excuse our sin and begin to say, I'm saved, as an excuse to live in holiness. A life minimizing sin. A life living in holiness is a blaring, flashing, screaming sign. I'm asleep. Samson laid his head in Delilah's lap. And he went to sleep. And she afflicted him and he knew not that the Lord had left him till it's too late. When we lay our head in the lap of the world and go to sleep, the world will afflict us. And then eventually something will happen that will stir us. Our children will go astray. Our marriage will start crumpling. Something will happen and we will rise up only to discover we are not with the Lord anymore. And like Samson, we will be blinded. We will be enslaved. We will be grinding away in misery. But the story of Samson does end in hope though, doesn't it? His hair began to grow back. The Lord returned. Dear friends, if we have gone to sleep, we can wake up. But it requires us to take what we've talked about today seriously. Right? Because... Here's what I know. If you're asleep, something within you is already pushing back against something I said this morning. Something within you is saying, yeah, but I don't have to love those people. I don't have to be that way. I can still act like that. This sin is not that big of a deal. You're taking it too far. There is something pushing back. Shay, no. And before you embrace that, before you say, well, I just don't, you, you're wrong on what the Bible means. Before you embrace that idea, I just want to ask you, why are you going to embrace it? Are you going to embrace it because of what the Bible says? Or are you going to embrace it because it makes you comfortable? Because it keeps you from having to change or move 
or anything else. There's one thing I know is that when I'm asleep, when I'm napping, I don't want to move. The doorbell rings, I don't want to answer it. I just want to stay. If I found a comfortable position, the temperature is just right, everything is just so, the dogs can stay outside, I don't care. I'm not moving. Unless it's the, if the building's not on fire, I'm not moving. And if our mindset is, if my life is not burning down right now, I'm not changing. It's not, it's not the Spirit of God. It's not the Word of God. It's a complacent, sleepy spirit that has overtaken us. Dear friend, if we are asleep, we must wake up. The world is burning down around us. Satan is winning battle after battle and victory after victory. And the only army that stands between him and victory is the church. And the sleeping church allows the dangerous, deadly enemy of our souls to slip on by and bring death and destruction to all. We must not allow that to happen. We must wake up. So I want to take time and pray this morning.